scriptures, we will read out of Hebrews chapter 13. <clears throat> Hebrews 13, <clears throat> beginning with verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teaching, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no lasting city but we are seeking the city which is to come. Well, the title of the message I originally thought would, would just be outside the camp, but that doesn't really do justice to it because it's out to him outside the camp. Let us go out to him outside the camp. <clears throat> the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish converts to Christianity. It was written because they were being tempted to return to their former manner of life in Judaism. They were in danger, this is just some of the uh, ways it's put in this book, they were in danger of drifting away, of failing to enter, of falling away, of spurning the Son of God, of shrinking back, of growing weary and faint-hearted, of refusing the voice of God, and the one we're, we read here today of being carried away, there in verse 9, carried away by varied and strange teachings. In short, these people were in danger of turning back to the shadows and not walking in the light of Christ. The book is centered on showing that Christ is the fulfillment of all that was taught under the Old Covenant and that it would be sin to go back to those types and shadows now that Christ has come. The Old Covenant had been superseded and transcended by the New. But I want us to get something of the feel of the situation these people were in, being tempted to turn back. Uh, we just kind of have to put ourselves in their shoes, in their situation. Here were these Jewish Christians, a despised little group of believers, meeting in homes and suffering various forms of persecution from unbelievers and even from their own Jewish countrymen. They were told, uh, actually were told in the book of Hebrews, that after they had been enlightened, that is, uh, come to see the truths of Christ and put their trust in him, they endured a conflict, a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. We're told that some were even put in prison and others 
had their property seized. So that gives you a feel of what was going on. Uh, but it wasn't just their enemies that were causing problems. There were these enticements from their the religion they'd been part of for, uh, all their lives. There was a strong pull of the established Jewish religion that they had left. Think about this. All these elaborate ceremonies that they had been part of. This great sense of national identity that they uh, were part of. The strong family ties. The magnificent temple that was there in Jerusalem. The shared history of thousands of, of people who for centuries were recognized as the chosen people of God. They, they were leaving all that behind, you see. So it wasn't just the, the trials that came by way of enemies uh, trying to harm them. It was the enticements of, of uh, what was there in the Jewish religion. So the argument that the writer of Hebrews uses is that these Jewish Christians had come to something far better, though. In fact, what they had come to was the real fulfillment of all that they had been called to leave, to leave behind. So as the book of Hebrews is closing, we see one more exhortation along this line, right here at the end of the book. Uh, the writer gives one more exhortation along, along this line. Don't get carried away or pulled back into these old ways of viewing things. You have come to something far greater in Christ. Go with him outside the gate. Go to him outside the camp. You see this uh, actually stated in three different uh, ways here. Well, th three ways. Uh, let me just read them to you again. For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin was burned outside the camp. So there's that phrase, outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So outside the camp, outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. So he's hitting this over and over. The people to whom this letter was written would have easily understood these exhortations. But for us Gentiles here in the 21st century, these phrases may need some explanation. So that's what I want to do here. Just examine these words a little bit. These Hebrew Christians would immediately recognize that the word camp was speaking of Israel's experience after they came out of Egypt under Moses. They were a great multitude moving their camp through the wilderness as God directed them. God told them exactly how to set the camp up and when to move it and when not to move. So that's the camp they're talking about uh, back in, in uh, Israel's history. Of course, by the time this letter was written, the camp of Israel no longer existed. The Jewish people were now settled in, in cities and villages. So this designation camp was being used somewhat allegorically to describe the present situation in which Jew, uh, the situation there in, in Jerusalem of the Jewish people where the temple and sacrificial system were now located right there in Jerusalem. It wasn't a camp anymore, it was a city. 
the writer does this because he wants to make a comparison between what had happened to the sin offering on the Day of Atonement and what happened to Christ as he made atonement for the sins of his people outside of Jerusalem. So he's making a comparison here, and this is what we might not pick up on exactly. That's why I think it's important to just analyze this a little bit. Normally, when an animal was brought to the priest for a sacrifice, the procedure was that the animal, animal was killed and its blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Then the meat of that animal could be roasted and was available for food for the priests and the Levites who performed the ceremonies. They lived off of what the sacrifices that were brought in. They could eat them after the blood was poured out. But things were different on the Day of Atonement. That's that what the Jewish people call Yom, Yom Kippur or Kippur, Day of Atonement. On that occasion, when the animals were offered for the sins, for the they were first of all they were offered for the sins of the high priest himself, and then for the sins of the nation. On that day, the bodies of those animals used for the sin offering were burned outside the camp. They couldn't eat these. They took those bodies and took them outside the camp and burned them. Now let's just turn back to this, Leviticus 16, just to see how it's worded back in the Old Testament. So Leviticus 16, verse 27. But the bull of the sin offering... And the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp. This is what the writer of Hebrews has picked up on here, that these bodies were taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuge in the fire. If you just go on down to verse 29, this shall be a permanent statute for you, in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien or whose sojourns with you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse, to cleanse you. You shall be cleansed from all your sins before the Lord. So this is that day of atonement. So the point is, is that normally the priest and the... the uh, Levites could eat these sacrifices, but not on the Day of Atonement. This was something different. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on that little fact that on that day, this animal was taken outside the camp and burned. And he makes a big point of this, uh, that this is a different situation. The writer of Hebrews takes this fact and draws a parallel between this ceremony on the Day of Atonement and the death of Christ, who died on the cross outside of Jerusalem, outside the camp. The gate spoken of, talks about being outside the gate, refers to the gate of the city of Jerusalem, which, as we have said, this Jerusalem was not a camp. Now it was a walled city, and there were gates in it. The point is that through the refer- though the references to outside the camp and outside the gate refer to different times in Israel's history, both references represent the idea of coming out of the old system of Judaism. The new covenant in Christ's blood 
made that whole system of temple and priest and sacrifice obsolete. And it was about to disappear. That's what we're told in Hebrews. Let me just read this to you after uh, the writer of Hebrews explains the new covenant in chapter 8. He says this, 8.13. When he said a new covenant, he, that is God, has made the first obsolete. So he made that first covenant, that old covenant, obsolete. But whatever is, whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now that's an incredible statement that he's making there. He's saying that old system, that whole order of things, it's obsolete and it's about to disappear. And that's actually what happened. In fact, just a few years after the book of Hebrews was written, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and its temple in fulfillment of what Christ had said to the Jewish people. He said, as for these things what you're looking at, you remember his disciples were looking at the temple, talking about how magnificent it was. He said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. He said, it's all going to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Not very, not, well, as the writer of Hebrews says, soon. Mm-hmm. He told, Jesus told the people of Jerusalem, behold, your house will be left to you desolate. And that's exactly what happened in 70 A.D. when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. The point being made to these Hebrew Christians was, you need to leave that obsolete system behind and keep looking only to Christ, the promised Messiah, the one that that whole system was pointing toward. Keep looking to Christ, the promised Messiah, who suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem, outside the camp. So what I'd like to do here, just briefly, is to consider some of the contrasts of being inside the camp and outside the camp. And we'll examine them as they were presented at that day of the, of the writing of Hebrews, but I, I think we can apply them to our day too, or the Holy Spirit can apply them to our day in each of our lives, in our own situations. So some of the contrasts between being inside the camp and outside the camp. Inside the camp, there seemed to be respectability. You were part of an ancient organized religion, a prominent, uh, uh, a prominent religion in the world, and uh, you might say this, it had prominent people in positions of power in it too. You were part of that, you see. But outside the camp, not respectability, reproach. That's what we're told here. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. It's, an, it's, an, it's the reproach of Christ. If you, if you come outside the camp, there's a reproach. It's the reproach of Christ. Outside the camp, well, just think about this. Even in, in those days, what was out, who were outside the camp? Well, I'll tell you one group, the lepers. Lepers were put outside the camp. But that's not the only people. The outcasts, the very despised, the rejected lived outside the camp. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go outside the camp. Think about that. 
Another thing that took place out the, outside the camp, that's where criminals were crucified. That's why Christ was out there. They didn't cru crucify those criminals inside Jerusalem. It was outside the camp. So, the point being, inside the camp, there was respect. Outside the camp, there was reproach. Inside the camp, there seemed to be ease and safety and security. You know, you had this walled city uh, you know, with its gates. Outside the camp, there was suffering. The suffering of taking up the cross. That's what took place outside the camp where these criminals were crucified. So, safety, security, inside. Outside, suffering. Inside the camp, there seemed to be permanency. Jerusalem had been the center of worship for the Jewish people for hundreds of years. Outside the camp, there was no earthly, lasting city. God's people were seeking a city which was to come, but it wasn't there yet. So the one seemed, to have, seemed, I say, seemed to have a sense of permanency. Actually, it was about to be destroyed, but it didn't seem that way at the time this was written. Uh, but outside the camp, there was no earthly, lasting city. Inside the camp, people walked by sight. Outside, they walked by faith. Now, let me tell you what I'm getting at here. Inside the camp, there was much that appealed to the flesh. The ceremonies, the rituals, the traditions, the elaborate worship that was centered on externals, lots of things you could see and look at there, get emotional about. All the details there related to the temple sacrifices, for instance. Outside the camp, there was little that appealed to the natural man because outside the camp, worship was essentially spiritual. The beauty and the bounty of Christ are only seen through the eye of faith. They don't appeal to the, to the eye, to the natural eye, to the natural man. Consider this. This is something you might have to ponder a little bit, uh, but I think it's true. The spiritually blind walk by sight. The spiritually blind walk by sight. Those who have, those with spiritual sight walk by faith. They really, I think that's what he's saying in verse 10. We have an altar which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. What's he talking about here? Well, you have to have spiritual sight to know what he's talking about. He's saying those that remain in the camp of Judaism did not perceive the altar that was displayed there on the cross of Christ. That's our altar, the cross of Christ. But you have to have spiritual sight to see what's going on there. Otherwise, you're just looking at a man being uh, tortured on a cross. Just a, a man dying a cruel death, not the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. But if you have spiritual sight, you can look at that altar, that place where Christ was crucified, and see 
This is the Lamb of God. This is the one that takes away my sins. But you see, that takes spiritual sight. So again, those inside the camp walk by sight. Those outside the, outside the camp walk by faith. Inside the camp, there were multitudes. Outside the camp, at least at this time, there was only a little flock. For the Christians, the time of being part of a great city is yet to come. That's what he says in verse 14. We have, for we do not have a lasting city. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. So, inside the camp, lots of people to uh, give you a feel like you're really part of something really big. Outside the camp, a little flock. Inside the camp, people were occupied with keeping rules about external things like what to eat, what to wear, what days to celebrate, where to worship. So salvation becomes a matter of works. Outside the camp, people are trusting in the grace of God shown to them, shown to them in Christ. It's a big difference. You see that in verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange, te- strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. He's making a contrast here, you see. There's essentially two different approaches to God. Two different approaches to God. Trust in your own law-keeping or trust in Christ as your law-keeper. Law or grace. Inside or outside the camp. So, just to sum it up then, inside the camp, there was this great religious system of works. Outside the camp was Christ alone. There seemed to be much to pull a person back inside the camp. But there was one big problem. Christ wasn't there. He wasn't inside the camp. If you're going to be with him, you must go to him outside the camp. We're told this in John 19:17, the account of the crucifixion. He went out. He went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. He went out, bearing his own cross. To be identified with Christ, we must go out as well. Those united with him go out to him outside the camp and continue to take up their cross daily and follow him. For the Jews of this day, the day we're talking about here in the book of Hebrews, this meant leaving behind the religious system of Judaism. For us today, it means leaving any religious system or worldview which deviates from faith in the finished work of Christ. Every true believer must turn away from carnal, world-centered, man-centered worship to a spiritual worship of God in Christ by His Spirit. You have to turn away 
from all that external stuff and turn look to him in the, in the eye through the eye of faith uh, Paul says it this way in Philippians Philippians 3 3 we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh inside the camp there's a great confidence in the flesh outside the camp there's no confidence in the flesh we worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, I think it's important to say that some people just kind of like to be thought of as come-outers. Those who won't have anything to do with false religion in any way, shape, or form. They seem to come out of every group that they're, they're part of. But their great emphasis is on coming out. It's not really on Christ. It's on coming out. And that emphasis is often carnal and full of pride. Their boast is in coming out. Their boast isn't in Christ. They just just like to be known as one of those come-outers. In fact, many of you think they've come out only succeed in setting up another camp. It's the camp of the come-outers. Uh, I think it's important to remember that separation from something does not guarantee separation to Christ. Separation from something that seems to be false does not guarantee that you're really coming to Christ. On the other hand, true separation to the Lord will sooner or later guarantee separation from all that's outside of him. Being united to Christ by faith will bring about naturally, or really I think I should say supernaturally, coming out of whatever camps do not honor him. But note the order of words there in verse 13. Let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Going out to him is the main thing. Going outside the camp is secondary. It's a consequence of going out to him, which is primary. Our emphasis is not coming out. Our emphasis is coming out to him, coming to him. Uh, There's a big difference there. If the reason for going out of some camp is not centered on going out to him, you probably just end up a loner or setting up some other unbiblical camp. True, spiritual, vital union with Christ is what matters. Union with Him is life. Union with Him is Christianity. Union with Him is where daily sanctification takes place among God's people. You see that in verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. That's, this is where sanctification is. You're not going to be sanctified just by coming out of something. You've got to come to him. That's where sanctification takes place. He suffered outside the camp that we might be sanctified. Sanctification involves being more and more set apart to him. Not just set apart, set apart to him. Let me just say a word about this idea of lone, 
what you might call lone wolf Christianity. And that's the idea, you know, it's just me and Jesus. Nobody else really is on par with the way I'm walking with God, suffering and the reproach the, the way uh, nobody else does. It's just, you know, me and Jesus. Well, that that's very unscriptural. Uh, God sets the solitary in families. He loves his people. Christ does not want his body disjointed or dismembered. He loves every member, and so should every believer. It's just, you know, we're the bride of Christ. Uh, you're not out there on your own. God never designed it to be that way. Yeah. So when we're talking about uh, coming out, we're not talking about just getting separate by yourself. Uh, actually, the reproach a person may sense if they have this lone wolf, lone wolf attitude could be probably is because of their pride and lack of love. That's the reproach they're sensing, not the reproach of Christ. I think it's noteworthy that the two other times that this word reproach is used in the book of Hebrews, it's used in the context of suffering reproach with the people of God. Let me just point these out to you. Look back to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32 But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were were so treated. In other words, you're part of this group that's being treated this way. You're not off there on your own. Partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated for you showed sympathy to the prisoners, that is, other Christians that were uh, being put in, in jail, and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding, abiding one. But the point is, they were suffering this reproach and this this uh, disrespect and whatever else uh, in as part of the people of God. They were suffering reproach with the people of God. Actually, he says earlier, do not forsake your your own assembling together as the habit of some is, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Don't get off by yourself. Stay with the people of God even though it's going to mean suffering reproach with them. And you see this same principle again in the life of Moses in uh, chapter 11 and verse 24 where it says, By faith Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. The point is that Moses was suffering this reproach with the people of God. So I'm, I'm just trying to emphasize the point that this idea of lone wolf Christianity is not scriptural. The reproach will come partly by being with the people of God. In one sense, we don't need to worry about coming out of camps. If our hearts are joined to Christ, eventually God will get us where he wants us to be. 
The point is, let's go forth to Him. Go forth to Him. Nourish your souls on high and holy thoughts of Him, of Christ, gleaned from His Word. Do those things which nourish the inner life of fellowship with Him and loving fellowship with His people. May God teach each of us more and more what it means to go out to Him bearing His reproach. Last, lastly, let us remember that here we have no continuing city, no lasting city, but we're seeking a city which is to, is to come. Just a little side note to bring this into current uh, events, uh, in, in light of current events. Uh, you might know that the uh, United States just recently moved its embassy for Israel into Jerusalem. And I heard some people referring to Jerusalem as the eternal capital of Israel. The eternal capital of Israel. But that's, that's not what we learn from this passage. These early Jewish Christians were told, here we have no continuing city. The earthly Jerusalem that's over there in Israel right now is not an eternal city. There is an eternal Jerusalem, but it's the new Jerusalem, the one John saw coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God. This present Jerusalem does not have the glory of God upon it. What is this new Jerusalem that John saw? Well, it's not so much a place as it is a people a people in love with Christ. It's his bride. So let's just look this up in the book of Revelation because this is what he's talking about here uh, in verse 14 of, of, of uh, Hebrews. He's talking about what John talks about in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21 And uh, kind of skip in the middle of a verse here. Revelation 21. Well, let's actually start with verse 2, where it says, And I saw the holy city. You all with me here? Revelation 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. So he's giving you a clue here, this this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven looks like a bride adorned for her husband. But then he explains it even more in, in verse 9, starting with the uh, last part of verse 9. Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So, so uh, John's told um, he's going to be uh, shown the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit, to a great and high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So he's told, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. What's he, what's he shown? He's shown the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God. So I say again that this new Jerusalem is not so much a place as it is a people. And who are the people? The people that love Christ the Bride of Christ. The present-day Jerusalem 
the one over there in Israel right now, is not eternal because it's not the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And it's not made up of people who love Christ. But the new Jerusalem is the eternal dwelling place of God with his people, which everyone, both Jew and Gentile, should be seeking. They should be seeking that, that Jerusalem, that new Jerusalem. For us Gentiles, outwardly, we may belong to a certain nation or state or city, but inwardly, in the very depths of our being, we as God's people belong to another order of existence altogether, a spiritual kingdom. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, uh, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. This is in chapter 12, verse 22. He's speaking to Christians. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to that. We've come to it, and also we're looking forward to it, to something far greater than any nation or state or city here in this present age. Um, I think we can even look back to the father of the faithful, the father of the Jewish people, Abraham. What did he do? He came out of a city that he was part of, that is Ur of the Chaldeans, because the God of glory had appeared to him. And in faith he left that, the old behind why? Because he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder was God. What was he looking for? He was looking for that new Jerusalem, that holy city. That's what we're told in the book of Hebrews. Spiritually, you see, we're talking spiritually. He had eyes to see. So, these Hebrew Christians that this book of Hebrews was written to, had had a revelation of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and there could be no turning back to what God had called them out of. They'd, they would come out outside the camp. For us present-day Christians, if we've seen the glory of God in the face of Christ, there's no going back to the weak and worthless things of this world's sinful ways or of worldly man-centered religion. We leave that behind. Well, in conclusion, may these two great truths dominate our minds and shape our lives. First, our union with Christ. The great truth of our union with Christ. And secondly, our citizenship in the heavenly Jerusalem. It will seem as no great thing to come out of something that will soon pass away if we are coming to Christ, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we're coming to this eternal city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We're not, we're not thinking about all we left behind. <laughs> we're thinking about what we have and what we have yet to come. The reproach of coming to Christ is, is temporary and so minuscule compared 
to the reward that's eternal uh, and glorious beyond our comprehension, really. Well, I, I thought I'd close with a verse out of Colossians because it fits in so well with what we've looked at here. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Isn't that an incredible thing? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. People look at you, they don't, they don't realize what's going on because your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Tremendous verse.